Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Continue to the end of the chapter. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, as you recall, we've been going through this book now for some time. <clears throat> and as Paul comes to chapter 3, his great concern is this false teaching that has infiltrated the church or the churches in this region, and he is greatly concerned about them being led astray by those who are trying to add works to faith or adding works to salvation. Remember there the Judaizers were trying to teach that the Gentiles not only needed to have faith in Christ, but they also needed to keep the law of Moses. In particular, they needed to be circumcised, as were the Jews, if they truly were to be in a right standing before God. And Paul is adamantly opposed to this, and he talks about <clears throat> our salvation, our justification is by faith alone. He comes to chapter 3, and he begins this chapter by asking several questions of the Galatian believers. And he appeals to their experience. His first appeal in this chapter is to their experience. He says, This only what I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. When you were saved, when you came to salvation in Christ, did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the works of the law? Or was it simply by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? He goes on, <clears throat> not only appealing to the testimony of their experience, but he, in verses 6 through 9, he appeals to the testimony of the Old Testament patriarch Abraham. He says, look at Abraham. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What had God done? God had given Abraham a promise. It was a unilateral, it was an unconditional promise. There was nothing for Abraham to do. God said, I will, I will, I will. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will um, greatly um, increase your tribe and give, make you a father of a great nation. And you, all nations of the earth, will be blessed. There was nothing for Abraham to actually perform. There were no works for Abraham to do. It was not a... Um, bilateral covenant. It was not conditional. It was not, if you will do this, Abraham, I will do this. No, God's covenant was unconditional. So Abraham, his t the testimony of Abraham, he believed God, and it was accounted for righteousness. Righteousness by faith alone. 
And then his third argument was to look at the testimony of the law. What does the law say? And in verse 11, chapter 3, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. And he cites the Old Testament scriptures here. He says, It is written, The just shall live by faith. The law demands doing. Faith says it is done. Christ has completed this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is that curse of the law? Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So there's the testimony of their experience, the testimony of Abraham, the testimony of the Old Testament law. And then he talks about, in verses 15, all the way up through verse 22, he is talking about the fact that because the, even though the law came and God gave the law, it did not undo the promise that God had given to Abraham. God had made promises to Abraham. And the law that came afterward did not nullify or change God's promises. Of course, he makes that point when he's talking about human covenants there in verse 15. He goes, even if speaking about the, after the manner of men, when a covenant is ratified, it can't be changed unilaterally. There's not one, one you know, side or one party that can come in and change the terms of the agreement. And God had already made a covenant with Abraham. The law which came 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. And he talks about the purpose of the law in verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. We find here that the purpose of the law was given so that men would see themselves as actual transgressors of God's law. In verse 22, he says, The Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. If there had been, been a law that could have given life, then a righteousness would have been by the works of the law. But there wasn't. The law did what? It confined all under sin. It made all men, it made all of them realize that they indeed are sinful. They are transgressors. Now, we come to verses 23 and 24. And this, these are wonderful verses because they're going to describe the work of the law before faith. Note what it says here in verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Here's the ministry of the law. We're going to find out what the law actually does. And this is really a fantastic passage. <clears throat> so pay close attention. What is the law doing? Look at this verse. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. 
Look at verse 25. It says, but after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The first thing I want you to note about the ministry of the law is that it is temporary. Do you see that? The ministry of the law is temporary. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Now, what is this faith? What is this faith when he says we were shut up or confined unto the faith which should afterward be revealed? Well, let me first tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that there was a time before faith when people were saved by works. There are some people who actually think that this is what this verse means. Before faith came. Well, before faith, it must have been by works. And there's some people who look and say, oh, see, there's the Old Testament. They were saved by works. But when faith came, now we're saved by faith. That cannot be what it means. Because no one has ever been saved by works. No one. Period. No one has ever been saved by works. In fact, what has, what has Paul just given us great detail on early in this chapter? Abraham. Abraham. How was Abraham saved? Well, it says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So how was Abraham accounted righteous? By his faith, not by his works. So when it says here, but before faith came... Cannot mean that there was a time before faith when people were saved by works. So what does that word faith mean? Well, all you need to do is just go back and look at the last time it was mentioned in verse 22. Note verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, or it might say of in your version, by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That word faith, when you look at it in the Greek, it is always, it's preceded by the article the, the faith. Shut up unto the faith. Here's the, that the promise by the faith in Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So here, the faith, what's he talking about? Talking about faith in Jesus Christ. Before faith in Jesus Christ came, we were kept or confined under the law. We were jailed, as it were, by the law. When we look at history, we divide history really into two periods of time. B.C., which means before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, or after, after Christ has come. So there's a division there. Before Christ, after Christ, or Anno Domini. Now, of course, the Jewish calendar, they don't function that way. They don't see that because they don't believe in Jesus. So their calendar doesn't work that way. But the ministry of the law, 
the ministry of the law, this ministry that we see, what it does is true of all people, not just the Jews. Somebody say, oh, well, that just applies to the Jews because they were given the law by God. But no, that's not the case. This ministry of the law is actually for all people. I want you to see that today. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. Kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterward be revealed. So here, verses 23 and 24 are going to deal with the function or the ministry of the law before faith in Jesus Christ. You want to see what the law does. So before faith in Jesus Christ, we were imprisoned. We were kept in custody by the law. Now, who is the we that this passage is speaking of? Note he says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. Who is the we? He's talking about just anyone, everyone, who in particular? Well, I believe that in particular, <clears throat> he's referring to those who believe. If you go back to verse 22, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Now that would refer to every man universally, everyone. The scriptures um, tell us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So all, the scripture concludes all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the ministry of the law of which he is speaking is a universal ministry, yet in, it is in particular referring to he says we, and he's speaking about those who believe. And you'll see how that affects, affects us as believers as we see this passage unfold before us. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. Who is the jailer? That word means that we're imprisoned. Who's the jailer? Well, in this, in this text here, it's the law. The law is confining men as transgressors. All men are placed into this prison, so to speak. They're imprisoned by the law. We're all guilty. And then the next question we'll want to note is for what or for what purpose are we kept in custody? Why are we imprisoned? I understand here the ministry of the law, what the law is actually doing. So in verse 23, before faith came, we were kept under the law. Who are the prisoners? Well, the law imprisons all who come into contact with the law, whether Jew or Gentile. When you come into the contact with the law, what do you find out? Well, you find out that you are a lawbreaker. The law defines sin. The law defines God's standard of righteousness. And the law makes every one of us realize that we are what? transgressors. In fact, even those who do not come into contact with God's written law are found to be sinners. Romans chapter 2, even those who never came into contact with the, law, with the written law of God are still programmed by God with a what? With a conscience. Conscience. 
And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2, and he says, When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, having the law of God written on their hearts. Even pagans know the difference between right and wrong. And what is amazing is that is such a clear evidence of a creator. Every man has a conscience he knows when he is doing wrong because his conscience condemns him. And when he's doing right, his conscience commends him. And folks, history is the story of men trying to escape the condemnation of conscience. What do men do? They'll, they try substances, abuse, drugs, anything, entertainment, amusement, um, overworking, anything, just to try to escape that noisy voice of conscience. <coughs> even today, what are they trying to do? Oh, let's teach children, um, even in preschool, let's... let's Teaching that genders are fluid and there's really not just male and female. You can be whatever you want. We'll teach them that homosexuality is a, just a lifestyle choice. What are they trying to do? They're trying to sear the consciences of the young so that they are, you know, what are they trying to do by doing that? They're trying to alleviate the guilt that comes because of sin. Yet they can't because God has programmed all of us with a conscience. Now, when a person comes into contact with the law, the law declares him to be guilty. Remember in Romans chapter 7, <clears throat> Paul is speaking there. And in Romans chapter 7, he says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In verse 7, he says, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And so here, when a person comes into contact with the law, he finds that he is condemned. So what do men decide to do? Oh, well, I know what I'll do then. I'll try to keep the law. That's, that, that's the ticket. That's what I'm supposed to do. And they look at the law and say, well, I'm supposed to keep the law. If I do that, I'll be free. You see, the law has jailed every man. Every man is within the confines of the law. And so a man says, well, I want to be free. So I'll just keep the law. That's what I'll do. Okay, well, when a person comes into contact with the law, decides to live by it, guess what? He does not find liberty. He'll find out that he is imprisoned by the law. He says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do good. When we come into contact with the Sermon on the Mount, and what does Jesus say? To those who are listening to him, he says, You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, that's, that's right, I'll make sure I don't commit adultery. 
And the Jews, what did they think? They thought they were righteous because they were still with their first wife. And what did Jesus say? He says, but if you have looked on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. Ugh. Condemned. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll live by the golden rule. I'll, I'll, I'll try to treat everybody as the way I want to be treated. I'll, I'll love my neighbor. Okay, well, Jesus says, you have heard that then said, thou shalt not kill. Well, I've never killed anyone, but if you have hated someone without cause, you're guilty of murder. Oh, condemned again. And every time a man tries to fulfill the law, he always comes up short. And the escape from that prison, the door slams shut in his face. You cannot. The law will not let you go. You are condemned. We are confined under the law. Remember, the law defines sin. Defines sin as transgressions against God's law. But somebody says, well, but... They finally come to the well, but nobody's perfect. How many times have we ever heard that? They use that as an excuse for their sinfulness. Well, folks, that's exactly the point. Nobody is perfect. The law demands perfection. There is no one who is perfect. So the law confines every one of us in jail, sinner's jail, so to speak. And all those who would try to please God by keeping the law are what? They're cursed. Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That leaves every one of us under a curse. Cursed is everyone. If you try to achieve righteousness by works, by the law, or as these Judaizers were trying to teach the Gentiles by circumcision, if you're trying to achieve righteousness or right standing and favor with God by the works of the law, you're under a curse. Because cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So the law defines sin and it pronounces a sentence against the guilty. They're cursed. You see, before a person comes to the law, they don't understand their condition. Before you come to the law, you don't understand your condition, just as Paul said in Romans 7. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus do? He intensified the law. He says, listen, the law is just not concerned with your outward actions. It's concerned with the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the motives. God sees your thoughts. God sees your heart. And God will judge you according to that. And when the law speaks, we are condemned. So for what is the law confining us? It says, before faith came, we were kept under the law and shut up. We're confined. And when you think of the law, what does the law confine us to? Well, you think, well, it confines us to judgment. What does the Bible say? The soul that sinneth, it shall what? It shall die. Eternal death is the punishment for sin. And that's exactly what we'd expect Paul to say. 
but that is not what he says. Look at this verse. Look at this verse. It says here, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto what? Unto the faith, the faith in Christ, which should afterwards be revealed. This is the gracious motive behind the law. There is a gracious motive behind the giving of the law. Every time a person strives to keep the law, he finds that he fails. Every time he fails. There have been many men in history, notable men even, who have tried to live moral lives. They've tried to every day wake up and to you know, check off a list. Ben Franklin was one. A list of morals he wanted to live by. 13 rules. And he tried to do this. And when he would fail, he'd make a black mark in his book. And there's quite a story of how he tried to live a moral life. And at the end of, the li- at the end of his life, he failed. And he recognized that he failed, but he came to the wrong conclusion. He goes, but I was a better man because of what I tried to do. <laughs> you know? But he failed. And he realized he could not live a perfectly moral life. Every time a person strives to keep the law, he finds that he fails. He cannot keep the law. Of course, Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 8. The flesh wants nothing to do with God's law. It cannot be made subject to God's law. It can't. It's impossible. There's no way out of jail by keeping the law. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 3? There he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. What could the law not do? It could not provide a way for man to be righteous. It could not. Why? Because it was dealing with men, with flesh. That's what this verse means. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There's no man that can keep the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's righteous, it's holy, it's just, it's good, it's given by God, it's pure. David talks about that in Psalm 19. There's no way out of jail by keeping the law. What does society do to try to alleviate the condemnation of the law? We've talked about that. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul speaks about the Jews and what they did, how they looked at the law. In Romans chapter 10, he talks about the zeal of the Jews. He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, there in verse 2, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So what did the Jews do? Here was the law. They couldn't keep it. And they knew they couldn't. So what did they do? Well, they just lowered the bar. They changed the standard. They said, all right, well, here's the rules, and here's what we need to keep. And to be righteous, we need to do these things. And they gave them with 600 and some laws to keep. And if they would do those things, they would be considered righteous. 
What were they doing? They rejected what God required and went about to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Folks, you can't change the standard and say, oh, now I've lived up to it. You know, it was kind of like high school basketball. There were some guys on the team that really would have liked to have been able to dunk the ball. But they were short. And they really couldn't jump very high. So what does the high school association do? Oh, we, we feel sorry for these guys. You know, now, This is probably how they do it now since they're woke. But let's just lower the rim, right? Let's put it at eight feet. Maybe these guys can be able to, you know, wouldn't that be nice? No, the, the, the standard didn't change. You can't just change the playing field. God's rules don't change. That's exactly what the Jews did. They said, well, we're going to redefine the law. This actually means this. In fact, Jesus talks about that so much in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about their hypocrisy, and he talks about how the Jews say, you know, the law says that you're to honor your father and mother. However, if your parents are in need, and they need your financial support, and you've got the money to help them, but you say, oh, no, this has been dedicated. I have set aside this money for the use of the Lord. Well, then you're free. You don't have to support your parents because you've, you've set that money aside or that the material stuff for the Lord. And now you're not obligated to your parents. And in doing so, what had they done? They had really disregarded God's law, but they'd set up their own rules that they would measure up to. Well, again, the ministry of the law is to shut up men in their sin so that they realize there is no escape. Every time you try to keep the law, you find that you fail. Every time. And that is by God's design. Because the ministry of the law is to shut up men in their sin so that there is no escape and then what does the law do? Verse 24, wherefore the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to what? To point us to the only escape, and that is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He is the only one who provides what the law demands. Back in Romans, Romans chapter 8. In verse 3, he has said here, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. In Romans chapter 10 where he was talking about the Jews, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the righteousness of those who come to God by faith. It's His righteousness. He is the only escape from the imprisonment that sin confines us in, that the law confines us in. So here in verse 24, we find that the law not only imprisons us, but it also tutors us. 
The jailer is now our instructor. The jailer is our instructor. Wherefore, the law, which imprisons us or confines us temporarily until faith, the law does what? The law is our schoolmaster or tutor. The Greek word here is a, a pedagogue. It's translated here as a schoolmaster. Now, a pedagogue back in those days was really not a teacher, but he was a household servant, a trusted household servant. Oftentimes it was an older man who may no longer have the strength to do many of the menial tasks. But what was his job? He was a trusted household slave who really had custody of the child after he was weaned on through adolescence. And what was his job? He was to make sure that the child went to school, made sure that the child was under the proper tutors, received the proper education. He taught him manners. He taught him all of these things. Now, this is not how we do it now, but this is how they did it back then. It was a, a, a pedagogue. There was this tutor who, would, who was responsible for the upbringing of the child. And often, when you see historical pictures of one of these trusted household servants that was responsible for the child, you don't see him with a book, but you see him with a rod in his hand. A rod. Because he was really responsible. His position was a position of discipline. Discipline. And so here, <clears throat> the function was mainly disciplinary. The law is our schoolmaster. It's our tutor. It is there to teach us. It is to lead us somewhere. The law tells us what sin is. It explains to us the penalty of sin. It shows us the fact that we are transgressors. And it ultimately shows us that good works will never release us from its grasp. Good works will never release a man from prison. What do we find when we go to the Old Testament? The Old Testament, the Old Testament law, most of the law is actually given to a particular theme. And that theme is that of sacrifice. You go back and read all the laws that God gave his people, and you look at that which deals with sacrifice, it is by far the greater portion. And there in the Old Testament, the life of the flesh, the Bible says, is in the blood. And God gave people the blood of animals to be a substitute for men. And there in the, old, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, every day, the sacrifices of animals were offered continually. We read about this in the book of Hebrews when we talk about Christ as the better sacrifice. There he talks about those priests standing daily, offering the sacrifices over and over, and their sacrificial work was never finished. But God designed that the blood of animals would be a substitute, a substitute. And as the Jews would observe this, they were being instructed that the blood of animals would provide a covering for their sin. But there was no end. 
It was perpetual, daily, everyday sacrifices without end. And there they realized that even the animal sacrifices gave no finality. No finality. What did these sacrifices do? They pointed to Christ until finally the last of all the Old Testament prophets stood and pointed at a 30-some-year-old man and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, and what was he? He was the forerunner. He was the one who introduced the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the purpose that we might be justified by faith. Now, the ministry of the law is not grace. Remember this. The ministry of the law is not grace. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3, and he talks about the, the law as the ministry of condemnation. It is the ministry of death. What does the law do? It confines us under sin. It gives us the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. It always has been. It always will be. That's God's standard. Scripture says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The ministry of the law is not a ministry of grace. However, the motive behind the law is gracious. Do you see that? God's motive in giving the law is gracious. God intends men's salvation by the ministry of the law. And that's why the ministry of the law is to be temporary. If the ministry of the law is permanent, then yes, you will be condemned to eternal death. But by design, the ministry of the law was to be temporary. It was to confine us in sin to show us that there was no escape but Christ. And until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are kept under the law. But if you do not escape to Christ, then you are confined to eternal judgment and eternal damnation. Jesus came not to call the righteous. In that verse, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That verse is not saying there are two types of people in the world. There are those who are righteous and those who are not. And Jesus just came for those who are not righteous. No, it's saying that everyone is unrighteous. But unless you realize your unrighteousness, you will not turn to Christ. Jesus said that he came not for those who were whole, but for those who were sick. Again, he's not dividing humanity into those who are whole and those who are sick. But he's saying only those who realize that they are sick 
can be made whole. Remember the Pharisees after Jesus had healed the blind man and, and he goes and, and he condemns them. And they said, are we blind also? And Jesus said, oh, no. if you were blind, I could help you. But now you say you, you see, therefore your sin remaineth. The ministry of the law is absolutely essential. And listen, you need to realize this. When you are sharing the gospel with someone, if you skip the law, you are not giving the true gospel. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of churches out there, a lot of men calling themselves the ministers of God who want to tell everyone about Jesus and how he has a great plan for your life, a plan of prosperity, health, and wealth. And if you will just believe in him, you'll do so much better. But what is the message of the gospel? Listen, if there is no ministry of the law, if there's no condemnation, then what you don't, then you don't need a savior. Maybe you need a life coach who will help you succeed, and, you know, do better, help you invest your money better, or help you, you know, overcome your phobias and your lack of social skills. But unless there's a ministry of the law, there's no need for a savior. And this is why it's so important that when we share the gospel, that people have to realize that they are lost. Amen. That is the ministry of the law. The ministry of the law is to confine us under sin so that it might point us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What did he say in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let me give you the Roland paraphrase. What Jesus said is, I am the way out of the jail in which the law has confined you. I am the only way out. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot be brought into fellowship with God. You cannot be restored, redeemed, but by me. It's not by your good works. That will never render you released from the jail in which the law has placed you. The only way out is Christ. And when we share the gospel, if people don't realize they're lost, they don't need Jesus. We need to be very careful that when we share the gospel, we share the whole gospel. Listen, don't you worry about the outcome. That's not in your control anyway. Your job is to faithfully, faithfully preach the truth of the gospel. And this is the beauty of this, this passage, because when I look at this passage in verses 23 and 24, he says, but before faith came, we... We, he is talking to the believers. 
We, you and me, you and I who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, before we came to faith in Christ, we were condemned, confined, kept in prison by the law temporarily, shut up until the faith which was to be afterward revealed. And the law is so effective. There is no one who escapes the condemnation of the law. It defines sin and renders all as sinners. But it was intended to be temporary. This ministry was intended to be temporary. And for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it was temporary. And we are now free from the law. The law was our schoolmaster to what? To bring us, to point us to Christ and to show him as the way out. That we might be justified by what? By faith. Folks, that's the only door out of that prison. Faith in Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, said Jesus. Of course, the passage will go on in the next set of verses here towards the end of the chapter describes us after faith has come. Verses 23 and 24, before we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, before faith, before Christ, here's the ministry of the law. And then the next verses are going to describe after, after faith, the believer after faith. But I hope that you see here today the ministry of the law, how effective it is. But again, remember, it is temporary. It is temporary. Because when we come to Christ, we are now dead to the law. But we are alive unto Christ. Alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this passage which so clearly describes the ministry of the law, the purpose of the law. And Lord, though the law is a law that condemns, Lord, you are gracious in giving it as a ministry which would point us to only one solution, that being your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have salvation. Lord, help us to think about this. Lord, to meditate on it. Lord, may it just really cause us to well up with gratitude and love for you, for what you have provided in your wisdom. We thank you that the ministry of the law is temporary for those who have come to faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is our righteousness. Lord, I pray that as we give the gospel to others, that we be faithful to, Lord, explain it correctly and allow the law to perform its work to demonstrate that all men are condemned, confined, or that others will see that Christ is the only answer. 
Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.